Chapter Six, Part Two of the Life of Cicero, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The Life of Cicero, Volume One, by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Six, Veres, Part Two. When the trial was over and Veres had consented to go into exile and to pay whatever fine was demanded. The perpetua oratio, which Cicero thought good to make on the matter, was published to the world. It is written as though it was to have been spoken, with counterfeit tricks of oratory, with some tricks so well done in the first part of it as to have made one think that, when these special words were prepared, he must have intended to speak them. It has been agreed, however, that such was not the case. It consists of a narration of the villainies of Verres, and is divided into what have been called five different speeches, to which the following appellations are given. De Praetura Urbana, in which we are told what Verres did when he was city praetor, and very many things also which he did before he came to that office. De Jurisdictione Siciliensi, in which is described his conduct as a Roman magistrate on the island. De Re Frumentaria, setting forth the abomination of his exactions in regard to the corn tax, De Signis, detailing the robberies he perpetuated in regard to statues and other ornaments, and De Supplicis, giving an account of the murders he committed and the tortures he inflicted. A question is sometimes mooted in conversation whether or no the general happiness of the world has been improved by increasing civilization. When the reader finds from these stories, as told by a leading Roman of the day, how men were treated under the Roman oligarchy, not only Greek allies, but Romans also, I think he will be inclined to answer the question in favour of civilization. I can only give a few of the many little histories which have been preserved for us in this Actio Secunda, but perhaps these few may suffice to show how a great Roman officer could demean himself in his government. Of the doings of Varys before he went to Sicily, I will select two. It became his duty on one occasion a job which he seems to have sought for purpose of rapine, to go to Lampascus, a town in Asia, as lieutenant or legate for Dolabella, who then had command in Asia. Lampascus was on the Hellespont, an allied town of specially good repute. Here he is put up as a guest, with all the honours of a Roman officer, at the house of a citizen named Janitor. But he heard that another citizen, one Philodamus, had a beautiful daughter, an article with which we must suppose that Janitor was not equally well supplied. Verres, determined to get at the lady, orders that his creature Rubrius shall be quartered at the house of Philodamus. Philodamus, who from his rank was entitled to be burdened only with the presence of leading Romans, grumbles at this, but having grumbled consents, and having consented does the best to make his house comfortable. He gives a great supper at which the Romans eat and drink and purposely create a tumult. Veres, we understand, was not there. The intention is that the girl shall be carried away and brought to him. In the middle of their cups the father is desired to produce his daughter, but this he refuses to do. Rubrius then orders the doors to be closed and proceeds to ransack the house. Philodamus, who will not stand this, fetches his son and calls his fellow-citizens around him. Rubrius succeeds in pouring boiling water over his host, but in the row the Romans get the worst of it. 
At last, one of Verres's lictors, absolutely a Roman lictor, is killed, and the woman is not carried off. The man at least bore the outward signs of a lictor, but, according to Cicero, was in the pay of Verres as his pimp. So far Verres fails, and the reader, rejoicing at the courage of the father who could protect his own house even against Romans, begins to feel some surprise that this case should have been selected. So far the lieutenant had not done the mischief he had intended, but he soon avenges his failure. He induces Dolabella, his chief, to have Philodamus and his son carried off to Laodicea, and there tried before Nero, the then proconsul, for killing the sham lictor. They are tried at Laodicea before Nero, Verres himself sitting as one of the judges, and are condemned. Then, in the marketplace of the town, in the presence of each other, the father and son are beheaded, a thing, as Cicero says, very sad for all Asia to behold. All this had been done some years ago, and nevertheless Verres had been chosen praetor and sent to Sicily to govern the Sicilians. When Verres was praetor at Rome, the year before he was sent to Sicily, it became his duty, or rather privilege, as he found it, to see that a certain temple of Castor in the city was given up in proper condition by the executors of a defunct citizen who had taken a contract for keeping it in repair. This man, whose name had been Junius, left a son, who was a Junius also, under age, with a large fortune in charge of various trustees, tutors, as they were called, whose duty it was to protect the heir's interests. Verres, knowing of old that no property was so easily preyed on as that of a minor, sees at once that something may be done with the temple of Castor. The heir took oath, and to the extent of his property he was bound to keep the edifice in good repair. But Verres, when he made an inspection, finds everything to be in more than usually good repair. There is not a scratch on the roof of which he can make use. Nothing has been allowed to go astray. Then one of his dogs, for he had boasted to his friend Ligur that he always went about with dogs to search out his game for him, suggested that some of the columns were out of the perpendicular. Verres does not know what this means, but the dog explains. All the columns are, in fact, by strict measurement, more or less out of the perpendicular, as we are told that all eyes squint a little, though we do not see that they squint. But as columns ought to be perpendicular, here was a matter on which he might go to work. He does go to work. The trustees, knowing their man, knowing also that in the present condition of Rome it was impossible to escape from an unjust praetor without paying largely, went to his mistress and endeavoured to settle the matter with her. Here we have an amusing picture of the way in which the affairs of the city were carried on in that lady's establishment, how she had her levy, took her bribes, and drove a lucrative trade. Doing, however, no good with her, the trustees settled with an agent to pay Verres two hundred thousand sesterces to drop the affair. This was something under two thousand pounds. But Verres repudiated the arrangement with scorn. He could do much better than that with such a temple and such a minor. He puts the repairs up to auction, and refusing a bid from the trustees themselves, the very persons who are the most interested in getting the work done, if there were work to do, has it knocked down to himself for five hundred and sixty thousand sesterces, or about five thousand pounds. Then we are told how he had the pretended work done by the putting up of a rough crane. 
No real work is done, no new stones are brought, no money is spent. That is the way in which Verres filled his office as Praetor Urbanus, but it does not seem that any public notice is taken of his iniquities as long as he confined himself to little jobs such as this. Then we come to the affairs of Sicily, and the long list of robberies is commenced by which that province was made desolate. It seems that nothing gave so grand a scope to the greed of a public functionary who was at the same time governor and judge as disputed wills. It was not necessary that any of the persons concerned should dispute the will among them. Given the facts that a man had died and left property behind him, then Verres would find means to drag the heir into court, and either frighten him into payment of a bribe, or else rob him of his inheritance. Before he left Rome for the province he heard that a large fortune had been left to one Dio, on condition that he should put up certain statues in the market-place. It was not uncommon for a man to desire the reputation of adorning his own city, but to choose that the expense should be borne by his heir rather than by himself. Failing to put up the statues, the heir was required to pay a fine to Venus Erichina, to enrich, that is, the worship of that goddess who had a favourite's temple under Mount Eryx. The statues had been duly erected. But nevertheless, here there was an opening. So Verres goes to work, and in the name of Venus brings an action against Dio. The verdict is given, not in favour of Venus, but in favour of Verres. This manner of paying honour to the gods, and especially to Venus, was common in Sicily. Two sons received a fortune from their father, with the condition that, if some special thing were not done, a fine should be paid to Venus. The man had been dead twenty years. But the dogs which the praetor kept were very sharp, and, distant as was the time, found out the claws. Action is taken against the two sons, who indeed gain their case, but they gain it by a bribe so enormous that they are ruined men. There was one Heraclius, the son of Hiero, a nobleman of Syracuse, who received a legacy amounting to three million sesterces, we will say twenty-four thousand pounds, from a relative, also a Heraclius. He had, too, a house full of handsome silver plate, silk and hangings, and valuable slaves. A man, dives equum, dives pictae vestis et auri. Verres heard, of course. He had by this time taken some Sicilian dogs into his service, men of Syracuse, and had learned from them that there was a clause in the will of the elder Heraclius that certain statues should be put up in the gymnasium of the city. They undertake to bring forward servants of the gymnasium who should say that the statues were never properly erected. Cicero tells us how Verres went to work, now in this court, now in that, breaking all the laws as to Sicilian jurisdiction, but still proceeding under the pretense of law, till he got everything out of the wretch, not only all the legacies from Heraclius, but every shilling and every article left to the man by his father. There is a pretense of giving some of the money to the town of Syracuse, but for himself he takes all the valuables, the Corinthian vases, the purple hangings, what slaves he chooses. Then everything else is sold by auction. How he divided the spoil with the Syracusans, and then quarrelled with them, and how he lied as to the share taken by himself, will all be found in Cicero's narrative. Heraclius was, of course, ruined. 
For the stories of Epicrates and Sopater, I must refer the reader to the oration. In that of Sopater there is the peculiarity that Verres managed to get paid by everybody all round. The story of Sthenius is so interesting that I cannot pass it by. Sthenius was a man of wealth and high standing, living at Therma in Sicily, with whom Verres often took up his abode, for as governor he travelled much about the island, always in pursuit of plunder. Sthenius had his house full of beautiful things. Of all these Verres possessed himself, some by begging, some by demanding, and some by absolute robbery. Sthenius, grieved as he was to find himself pillaged, bore all this. The man was Roman praetor, and injuries such as these had to be endured. At Therma, however, in the public place of the city, there were some beautiful statues. For these Verres longed, and desired his host to get them for him. Sthenius declared that this was impossible. The statues had, under peculiar circumstances, been recovered by Scipio Africanus from Carthage, and been restored by the Roman general to the Sicilians, from whom they had been taken, and had been erected at Therma. There was a peculiarly beautiful figure of Stesichorus the poet, as an old man bent double, with a book in his hand, a very glorious work of art, and there was a goat, in bronze probably, as to which Cicero is at the pains of telling us that even he, unskilled as he was in such matters, could see its charms. No one had sharper eyes for such pretty ornaments than Cicero, or a more decided taste for them. But, as Hortensius, his rival and opponent in this case, had taken a marble sphinx from Verres, he thought it expedient to show how superior he was to such matters. There was probably something of joke in this, as his predilections would no doubt be known to those he was addressing. In the matter, Sthenius was incorruptible and not even the praetor could carry them away without his aid. Cicero, who is very warm in praise of Sthenius, declares that here at last Verres had found one town, the only one in the world, from which he was unable to carry away something of the public property by force or stealth or open command or favour. The governor was so disgusted with this that he abandoned Sthenius, leaving the house which he had plundered of everything, and betook himself to that of one Agathinus, who had a beautiful daughter, Calidama, who, with her husband, Dorotheus, lived with her father. They were enemies of Sthenius, and we are given to understand that Verres ingratiated himself with them partly for the sake of Calidama, who seems very quickly to have been given up to him, and partly that he might instigate them to bring actions against Sthenius. This is done with great success, so that Sthenius is forced to run away and betake himself, winter as it was, across the seas to Rome. It has already been told that when he was at Rome, an action was brought against him by Verres for having run away when he was under judgment, in which Cicero defended him, and in which he was acquitted. In the teeth of his acquittal, Verres persecuted the man by every form of law which came to his hands as praetor, but always in opposition to the law. There is an audacity about the man's proceedings, in his open contempt for the laws which it was his special duty to carry out, making us feel how confident he was that he could carry everything before him in Rome by means of his money. By robbery and concealing his robberies, 
by selling his judgments in such a way that he should maintain some reticence by ordinary precaution, he might have made much money as other governors had done. But he resolved that it would pay him better to rob everywhere openly, and then, when the day of reckoning came, to buy the judges wholesale. As to shame at such doings, there was no such feelings left among Romans. Before he comes to the story of Senius, Cicero makes a grandly ironical appeal to the bench before him. Yes, O judges, keep this man, keep him in the state, spare him, preserve him, so that he too may sit with us as a judge here, so that he too may with impartiality advise us as a senator what may be best for us as to peace and war. Not that we need trouble ourselves as to his senatorial duties. His authority would be nothing. When would he dare, or when would he care, to come among us? Unless it might be the idle month of February, when would a man so idle, so debauched, show himself in the Senate-house? Let him come and show himself. Let him advise us to attack the Cretans, to pronounce the Greeks of Byzantium free, to declare Ptolemy king. Let him speak and vote as Hortensius may direct. This will have but little effect upon our lives or our property. But beyond this there is something we must look to, something that would be distrusted, something that every good man has to fear. If by chance this man should escape out of our hands, he would have to sit there upon that bench and be a judge. He would be called upon to pronounce on the lives of Roman citizens. He would be the right-hand officer in the army of this man here, of this man who is striving to be the lord and ruler of our judgment seats. The people of Rome at least refuse this. This at least cannot be endured. The third of these narratives tells us how Verres managed in his province that provision of corn for the use of Rome, the collection of which made the possession of Sicily so important to the Romans. He begins with telling his readers, as he does too frequently, how great and peculiar is the task he has undertaken, and he uses an argument of which we cannot but admit the truth, though we doubt whether any modern advocate would dare to put it forward. We must remember, however, that Romans were not accustomed to be shame-faced in praising themselves. What Cicero says of himself, all others said also of themselves, only Cicero could say it better than others. He reminds us that he who accuses another of any crime is bound to be especially free from that crime himself. Would you charge anyone as a thief? You must be clear from any suspicion of even desiring another man's property. Have you brought a man up for malice or cruelty? Take care that you be not found hard-hearted. Have you called a man a seducer or an adulterer? Be sure that your own life shows no trace of such vices. Whatever you would punish in another, that you must avoid yourself. A public accuser would be intolerable, or even a caviller, who should inveigh against sins for which he himself is called in question. But in this man I find all wickednesses combined. There is no lust, no iniquity, no shamelessness of which his life does not supply us with ample evidence. The nature of the difficulty to which Cicero is thus subjected is visible enough. As Verres is all that is bad, so must he, as accuser, be all that is good. 
which is more, we should say, than any man would choose to declare of himself. But he is equal to the occasion. In regard to this man, O judges, I lay down for myself the law as I have stated it. I must so live that I must clearly seem to be, and always have been, the very opposite of this man. Not only in my words and deeds, but as to that arrogance and impudence which you see in him. Then he shows how opposite he is to Verres, at any rate, in impudence. I am not sorry to see, he goes on to say, that that life which has always been the life of my own choosing, has now been made a necessity to me by the law which I have laid down for myself. Mr. Pecksniff spoke of himself in the same way, but no one, I think, believed him. Cicero probably was believed. But the most wonderful thing is that his manner of life justified what he said of himself. When others of his own order were abandoned to lust, iniquity, and shamelessness, he lived in purity, with clean hands, doing good as far as was in his power to those around him. A laugh will be raised at his expense in regard to that assertion of his that, even in the matter of arrogance, his conduct should be the opposite of that of Verres. But this will come because I have failed to interpret accurately the meaning of those words, Oris oculorumque illa contumacia ac superbia quam videtis. Verres, as we can understand, had carried himself during the trial with a bragging, brazen, bold face, determined to show no shame as to his own doings. It is in this, which was a matter of manner and taste, that Cicero declares that he will be the man's opposite, as well as in conduct. As to the ordinary boastings by which it has to be acknowledged that Cicero sometimes disgusts his readers, it will be impossible for us to receive a just idea of his character without remembering that it was the custom of a Roman to boast. We wait to have good things said of us, or are supposed to wait. The Roman said them of himself. The weni weedy weeki was the ordinary mode of expression in those times, and in earlier times among the Greeks. This is distasteful to us, and it will probably be distasteful to those who come after us, two or three hundred years hence, that this or that British statesman should have made himself an earl or a knight of the garter. Now it is thought by many to be proper enough. It will shock men in future days that great peers or rich commoners should have bargained for ribbons and lieutenancies and titles. Now it is the way of the time. Though virtue and vice may be said to remain the same from all time to all time, the latitudes allowed and the deviations encouraged in this or the other age must be considered before the character of a man can be discovered. The boastings of Cicero have been preserved for us. We have to bethink ourselves that his words are two thousand years old. There is such a touch of humanity in them, such a feeling of latter-day civilization and almost of Christianity, that we are apt to condemn what remains in them of paganism, as though they were uttered yesterday. When we come to the coarseness of his attacks, his descriptions of Piso by and by, his abuse of Gabinius and his invectives against Antony, when we read his altered opinions as shown in the period of Caesar's dominion, his flattery of Caesar when in power and his exultations when Caesar has been killed, when we find that he could be coarse in his language and a bully and servile, for it has all to be admitted, we have to reflect under what circumstances, under what surroundings, 
and for what object were used the words which displease us. Speaking before the full court at this trial, he dared to say he knew how to live as a man and to carry himself as a gentleman. As men and gentlemen were then, he was justified. The description of Verres's rapacity in regard to the corn tax is long and complex and need hardly be followed at length, unless by those who desire to know how the iniquity of such a one could make the most of an imposition which was in itself very bad, and pile up the burden till the poor province was unable to bear it. There were three kinds of imposition as to corn. The first, called the decumanum, was simply a tithe. The producers through the island had to furnish Rome with a tenth of their produce, and it was the praetor's duty, or rather that of the quaestor under the praetor, to see that the tithe was collected. How Verres saw to this himself, and how he treated the Sicilian husbandman in regard to the tithe, is so told that we are obliged to give the man credit for an infinite fertility of resources. Then there is the emptum, or corn bought for the use of Rome, of which there were two kinds. A second tithe had to be furnished at a price fixed by the Roman Senate, which price was considered to be below that of its real value. And then eight hundred thousand bushels were purchased, or nominally purchased, at a price which was also fixed by the Senate, but which was nearer to the real value. Three sesterces a bushel for the first, and four for the last, were the prices fixed at this time. For making these payments, vast sums of money were remitted to Verres, of which the accounts were so kept that it was hard to say whether any found its way into the hands of the farmers, who undoubtedly furnished the corn. The third corn tax was the aestimatum. This consisted of a certain fixed quantity which had to be supplied to the praetor for the use of his governmental establishment, to be supplied either in grain or in money. What such a one as Verres would do with this, the reader may conceive. All this was of vital importance to Rome. Sicily and Africa were the granaries from which Rome was supplied with its bread. To get supplies from a province was necessary. Rich men have servants in order that they may live at ease themselves. So it was with the Romans, to whom the provinces acted as servants. It was necessary to have a sharp agent, some proconsul or proprietor, but when there came one so sharp as Verres, all power of recreating supplies would for a time be destroyed. Even Cicero boasted that in a time of great scarcity, he, being the quaestor in Sicily, had sent extraordinary store of corn over to the city. But he had so done it as to satisfy all who were concerned. Verres, in his corn dealings with the Sicilians, had a certain friend, companion, and minister, one of his favourite dogs, perhaps we may call him, named Apronius, whom Cicero specially describes. The description I must give, because it is so powerful, because it shows us how one man could in those days speak of another in open court before all the world, because it affords us an instance of the intensity of hatred which the orator could throw into his words, but I must hide it in the original language, as I could not translate it without offence. Footnote. In Verem, Actio Secunda, Book 3, 9. Latin text follows, from Is erat apronius ile, to In convivio saltare nudus coeperat. End of footnote. 
Then we have a book devoted to the special pillage of statues and other ornaments, which, for the genius displayed in storytelling, is perhaps of all the Verrine narrations the most amusing. The Greek people had become in a peculiar way devoted to what we generally call art. We are much given to the collecting of pictures, china, bronze, and marbles, partly from love of such things, partly from pride in ornamenting our houses so as to excite the admiration of others, partly from a feeling that money so invested is not badly placed with a view to future returns. All these feelings operated with the Greeks to a much greater extent. Investment in consoles and railway shares were not open to them. Money they used to lend at usury, no doubt, but with a great chance of losing it. The Greek colonists were industrious, were covetous, and prudent. From this it had come to pass that, as they made their way about the world, to the cities which they established round the Mediterranean, they collected in their new homes great store of ornamental wealth. This was done with much profusion at Syracuse, a Greek city in Sicily, and spread from there over the whole island. The temples of the gods were filled with the works of the great Greek artists, and every man of note had his gallery. That Verres, hog as he is described to have been, had a passion for these things is manifest to us. He came to his death at last in defence of some favourite images. He had returned to Rome by means of Caesar's amnesty, and Mark Antony had him murdered because he would not surrender some treasures of art. When we read the De Signis about statues, we are led to imagine that the search after these things was the chief object of the man throughout his three years of office, as we have before been made to suppose that all his mind and time had been devoted to the cheating of the Sicilians in the matter of corn. But though Verres loved these trinkets, it was not altogether for himself that he sought them. Only one-third of his plunder was for himself. Senators, judges, advocates, consuls, and praetors could be bribed with articles of virtue as well as with money. There are eleven separate stories told of these robberies. I will give very shortly the details of one or two. There was one Marcus Heus, a rich citizen of Messana, in whose house Verres took great delight. Messana itself was very useful to him, and the Mamertines, as the people of Messana were called, were his best friends in all Sicily, for he made Messana the depot of his plunder, and there he caused to be built at the expense of the government an enormous ship, called the Cybea, in which his treasures were carried out of the island. He therefore specially favoured Messana, and the district of Messana was supposed to have been scourged with him with lighter rods than those used elsewhere in Sicily. But this man Haeus had a chapel, very sacred, in which were preserved four specially beautiful images. There was a Cupid by Praxiteles, and a bronze Hercules by Myro, and two Caneferi by Polycletus. These were treasures which all the world came to see, and which were open to be seen by all the world. These Verres took away, and caused accounts to be forged in which it was made to appear that he had bought them for trifling sums. It seems that some forced assent had been obtained from Haeus as to the transaction. Now there was a plan in vogue for making things pleasant for a proconsul retiring from his government, in accordance with which a deputation would proceed from the province to Rome to declare how well and kindly the proconsul had behaved in his government. The allies, even when they had been, as it were, skinned alive by their governor, were constrained to send their deputations. 
Deputations were got up in Sicily from Messana and Syracuse, and with the others from Messana came this man, Haeus. Haeus did not wish to tell about his statues, but he was asked questions and was forced to answer. Cicero informs us how it all took place. He was a man, he said, this is what Cicero tells us that Haeus said, who was well esteemed in his own country, and would wish you, you judges, to think well of his religious spirit and of his personal dignity. He had come here to praise Verres because he had been required to do so by his fellow citizens. He, however, had never kept things for sale in his own house, and had he been left to himself, nothing would have induced him to part with the sacred images which had been left to him by his ancestors as the ornaments of his own chapel. Nevertheless, he had come to praise Verres, and would have held his tongue had it been possible. Cicero finishes his catalogue by telling us of the manifold robberies committed by Verres in Syracuse, especially from the temples of the gods, and he begins his account of the Syracusan iniquities by drawing a parallel between two Romans whose names were well known in that city, Marcellus, who had besieged it as an enemy and taken it, and Verres, who had been sent to govern it in peace. Marcellus had saved the lives of the Syracusans, Veres had made the forum to run with their blood. The harbour which had held its own against Marcellus, as we may read in our Livy, had been wilfully opened by Veres to Cilician pirates. This Syracuse, which had been so carefully preserved by its Roman conqueror, the most beautiful of all the Greek cities on the face of the earth, so beautiful that Marcellus had spared to it all its public ornaments, had been stripped bare by Veres. There was the temple of Minerva, from which he had taken all the pictures. There were the doors to this temple of such beauty that books had been written about them. He stripped the ivory ornaments from them, and the golden balls with which they had been made splendid. He tore from them the head of the gorgon, and carried it away, leaving them to be rude doors, goth that he was. And he took the Sappho from the Pritaneum, the work of Silenian, a thing of such beauty that no other man can have the like of it in his own private house, yet Verres has it, a man hardly fit to carry such a work of art as a burden, not possess it as a treasure of his own. What, too, he says, have you not stolen Pian from the temple of Esculapius, a statue so remarkable for its beauty, so well known for the worship attached to it, that all the world has been wont to visit it? What, has not the image of Aristaeus been taken by you from the temple of Bacchus? Have you not even stolen the statue of Jupiter Imperator, so sacred in the eyes of all men, that Jupiter which the Greeks call Urios? You have not hesitated to rob the temple of Rosapina of the lovely head in Parian marble. Then Cicero speaks of the worship due to all these gods, as though he himself believed in their godhead. As he had begun this chapter with the Mamatines of Masana, so he ends it with an address to them. It is well that you should come, you alone out of all the provinces, and praise Verres here in Rome. But what can you say for him? Was it not your duty to have built a ship for the Republic? You have built none such, but have constructed a huge private transport vessel for Verres. Have you not been exempted from your tax on corn? Have you not been exempted in regard to naval and military recruits? Have you not been the receptacle of all his stolen goods? 
they will have to confess these mamatines that many a ship laden with his spoils has left their port and especially this huge transport ship which they built for him in the de supplicis the treatment about punishments as the last division of this process is called cicero tells the world how verres extracted vengeance from those who were opposed to him and with what horrid cruelty he raged against his enemies the stories indeed are very dreadful it is harrowing to think that so evil a man should have been invested with powers so great for so bad a purpose but that which strikes a modern reader most is the sanctity attached to the name of a roman citizen and the audacity with which the roman proconsul disregarded that sanctity cives romanus is cicero's cry from the beginning to the end no doubt he is addressing himself to romans and seeking popularity as he always did but nevertheless the demands made upon the outside world at large by the glory of that appellation are astonishing even when put forward on such an occasion as this one gavius escapes from a prison in syracuse and making his way to messana foolishly boasts that he would be soon over in italy out of the way of praetor verres and his cruelties verres unfortunately is in messana and soon hears from some of his friends the Mamatines, what Gavius was saying. He at once orders Gavius to be flogged in public. Cives Romanus sum, exclaims Gavius, no doubt truly. It suits Verres to pretend to disbelieve this, and to declare that the man is a runagate slave. The poor wretch still cries, Cives Romanus, and trusts alone to that appeal, whereupon Verres puts up a cross on the seashore and has the man crucified in sight of Italy, so that he should be able to see the country of which he is so proud. Whether he had done anything to deserve crucifixion, or flogging, or punishment at all, we are not told. The accusation against Verres is not for crucifying the man, but for crucifying the Roman. It is on this occasion that Cicero uses the words which have become proverbial as to the iniquity of this proceeding. Footnote. In Verem Actio Secunda, Book 5, 66. Facinus est vinciri civem Romanum, scelus verberari, prope paricidium necari, quid dicam in crucem. End of footnote. During the telling of this story, he explains this doctrine, claiming for the Roman citizen all the world over some such protection as Freemasons are supposed to give each other, whether known or unknown. Men of straw, he says, of no special birth, go about the world. They resort to places they have never seen before, where they know none and none know them. Here, trusting to their claim solely, they feel themselves to be safe, not only where our magistrates are to be found, who are bound both by law and by opinion, not only among other Roman citizens who speak their language and follow the same customs, but abroad, over the whole world, they find this to be sufficient protection. Then he goes on to say that if any praetor may at his will put aside this sanctity, all the provinces, all the kingdoms, all the free states, all the world abroad, will very soon lose the feeling. But the most remarkable story is that told of a certain pirate captain, Verres had been remiss in regard to the pirates, very cowardly indeed, if we are to believe Cicero. Piracy in the Mediterranean was at that time a terrible drawback to trade. 
that piracy that a year or two afterward Pompey was effectual in destroying. A governor in Sicily had, among other special duties, to keep a sharp lookout for the pirates. This varies omitted so entirely that these scourges of the sea soon learned that they might do almost as they pleased on the Sicilian coasts. But it came to pass that on one day a pirate vessel fell by accident into the hands of the governor's officers. It was not taken, Cicero says, but was so overladen that it was picked up almost sinking. It was found to be full of fine, handsome men, of silver, both plated and coined, and precious stuffs. Though not taken, it was found, and carried into Syracuse. Syracuse is full of the news, and the first demand is that the pirates, according to Roman custom, shall all be killed. But this does not suit berries. The slave markets of the Roman Empire are open, and there are men among the pirates whom it will suit him better to sell than to kill. There are six musicians, Symphoniacus homines, whom he sends as a present to a friend at Rome. But the people of Syracuse are very much in earnest. They are too sharp to be put off with pretenses, and they count the number of slaughtered pirates. There are only some useless, weak, ugly old fellows beheaded from day to day, and being well aware how many men it must have taken to row and manage such a vessel, they demand that the full crew shall be brought to the block. There is nothing in victory more sweet, says Cicero, no evidence more sure than to see those whom you did fear, but have now got the better of, brought out to tortures or death. Verres is so much frightened by the resolution of the citizens that he does not dare to neglect their wishes. There are lying in the prisons of Syracuse a lot of prisoners, Roman citizens, of whom he is glad to rid himself. He has them brought out, with their heads wrapped up so that they shall not be known, and has them beheaded instead of the pirates. A great deal is said, too, about the pirate captain, the arch-pirate, as he is called. There seems to have been some money-dealings personally between him and Verres, on account of which Verres kept him hidden. At any rate, the arch-pirate was saved. In such a manner this celebrated victory is managed— the pirate ship is taken, and the chief pirate is allowed to escape. The musicians are sent to Rome. The men who are good-looking and young are taken to the praetor's house. As many Roman citizens as will fill their places are carried out as public enemies and are tortured and killed. All the gold and silver and precious stuffs are made a prize of by Verres. Such are the accusations brought against this wonderful man, the truth of which has, I think, on the whole, been admitted. The picture of Roman life which it displays is wonderful, that such atrocity should have been possible, and equally so of provincial subjection, that such cruelty should have been endured. But in it all, the greatest wonder is that there should have risen up a man so determined to take the part of the weak against the strong, with no reward before him apparently with no other prospect than that of making himself odious to the party to which he belonged. Cicero was not a Gracchus, anxious to throw himself into the arms of the people. He was an oligarch by conviction, born to oligarchy, bred to it, convinced that by it alone could the Roman Republic be preserved. But he was convinced also that unless these oligarchs could be made to do their duty, the Republic could not stand. Therefore it was that he dared to defy his own brethren, 
and to make the acquittal of Verres an impossibility. I should be inclined to think that the day on which Hortensius threw up the sponge, and Verres submitted to banishment and fine, was the happiest in the orator's life. Verres was made to pay a fine which was very insufficient for his crimes, and then to retire into comfortable exile. From this he returned to Rome when the Roman exiles were amnestied, and was shortly afterward murdered by Antony, as has been told before. End of chapter 6